You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned in to our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify the work of the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. We're coming to you from the train track enclosed nerve center that's the headquarters of the Office of Cable TV, Film, Music, and Entertainment. It's also the historic headquarters of Black Entertainment Television, so it's an honor to be here. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called the Council. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the Council. You may also know me as the Council's voice on social media, at Council of DC. If you don't follow us already, you've missed the boat. Here at the Council, our communications goal is to engage with residents in an informative, conversational, and sometimes even enjoyable way. You know if you follow us on Twitter, we're believers in the Mary Poppins School of Communications. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We want to make it easy for average residents to understand what the Council does. We're demystifying our work and the people who do it. Remember, the DC Council's just like your workplace, except with the dais. On the show, we'll try to keep things light, offbeat, informal, and interesting. You'll learn about policy, learn about people, learn about history, and learn about the institution. Listeners, we're working our way through recording four rounds of interviews with council members. They're available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Those focused mainly on getting to know the council members' backgrounds, successes, struggles, and the people who shape and surround them. In the fourth round, we're broadening things out, tackling issues that interest the council members and me. Um, so uh, without any further ado, we're going to welcome uh, Ward 3 Councilmember Mary Che. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming back. Uh, the topic that you've picked uh, for us to address today is one uh, that is very close and uh, near and dear to your heart throughout your career, and that's the topic of food policy and nutrition. Uh, so why don't you talk to me about how this came to be one of the, indeed, the central uh, focuses, foci of your uh, policy, one of your policy priorities, let's call it that. It is one of my policy priorities, and thank you for giving me the chance uh, to talk about it. I've done rather extensive work in the area of food policy and nutrition, and uh, before I actually talk about some of these things, uh, there are a couple of fundamental points uh, that this work illustrates, I think. One is that, particularly in default of the federal government, but even beyond that, there are certain areas where local governments really are the best units of government to address problems because they can um, focus on exactly what the problems are in a limited jurisdiction and and bring together you know a lot of different uh, resources, but make them work for that particular jurisdiction. I think that's the case with food policy in, in particular. Uh, the second thing that this work uh, illustrates, for me at least, is that I'm always so happy that I've gotten this gift of uh, serving in public office because when I see a problem, I can actually look at it and say, you know, I think I want to do something about that. And then I'm able to. So. 
Uh, I just want to thank people for giving me this gift to be able to uh, problem solve, and this is one of those areas. I didn't come into the council thinking that, you know, I have a, you know, an agenda on, on food policy and nutrition and all of that. Actually, I wasn't thinking about that at all. Uh, it wasn't one of the things that was uppermost in my mind. What happened was, um, very soon after taking office, you know, I would go to school assemblies or go out to schools for various reasons. And even just looking around, I started noticing that there were, to me, a large number of children who were overweight or obese. And once you notice something, you know how that works. Then you notice it everywhere. Right. And so I started thinking about that a little bit. Um, and, you know, talking to uh, physicians and so on, I learned something about children being overweight. First of all, the associated illnesses will mean that, unless we get this problem under control, that we may have the first generation, which has a shorter lifespan than generations before us, which hasn't happened. Usually, you know, it expands. And then if a child is overweight as a child, the fact of the matter is they will probably stay overweight. And being overweight or obese, and the percentage in the United States and in the District of Columbia is very, very significant, leads to many chronic illnesses. It leads to diabetes, it leads to hypertension, heart problems, uh, a whole host of uh, ills uh, that are chronic and stay with the person and really materially constrict their lives. So seeing this, I said, well, you know, what, what can I do about it? Well, I started on a path first with an omnibus bill, uh, you know, a bill that does many things. It was the Healthy Schools Act. It was followed by many other healthy acts, and my office sometimes makes fun of me because I have the Healthy Schools Act, the Healthy Tots Act, the Healthy Parks Act, and I have proposed the Healthy Shelters Act. But starting with the Healthy Schools Act, which was about 10 years ago, I raised the nutrition level of the meals for kids in school. That was one thing. I provided that all children in the District of Columbia get a free breakfast. There are uh, school gardens that were uh, um, re not required, but incentivized. And a lot of the schools have school gardens now. It's really quite wonderful. I wanted to uh, accentuate uh, local foods, so uh, farm to, to school kinds of things. It reintroduced a concept that was uh, alive when I was a kid, although it wasn't always followed through in a proper way real physical education and health education. In other words, we had to look at the child in terms of uh, how that child was doing beyond, you know, reading and writing. In fact, to illustrate why that's useful, one of the provisions of the original bill said that in certain areas where there is a high percentage of low uh, income or high percentage of uh, reduced or free lunch and, and dinner, uh, in cases where we provide dinner, that those children could eat their breakfast in the classroom. And initially I got pushback, you know, from teachers and the teachers union and that sort of thing. They were saying, no, no, this will be disruptive. Kids will be eating in the classroom. And they just saw it was like a problem. Well, after it was underway for a couple of months, I didn't hear a peep. Do you know why I didn't hear a peep? You want to venture a guess? Probably because the only thing more disruptive than kids eating in the classroom is kids 
starving in the classroom. Exactly right. Once they had something to eat, they calmed down, and the teachers saw this. They were ready to learn, in other words. You can't divorce uh, a, a child's hunger from whether they're going to be able to learn in the classroom. In any case, that was the, my first uh, foray for it. But then when I added, you know, uh, Healthy Parks Act, you know, so that there would be food available to children if they joined our camps, um, and I wanted to make sure there were no gaps so that we would have uh, food programs for children who needed them uh, when school ended but before camps began and after camps ended but before school picked up again. The idea was to have a seamless uh, set of uh, meals available to kids who needed it and bringing uh, meals home over weekends for some uh, children who also needed that. In the Healthy Parks statute, similar kind of thing, to uplift the nutrition values of food available at the parks. The same will be true of the Healthy Tots, you know, the, the little ones, not just in the public school system. Um, and, and healthy shelters. We have families in shelter now, uh, and they should have the same good, well-prepared food uh, that's nutritious and, and uh, available in appropriate amounts so that uh, kids aren't and families aren't hungry. Um, so that, that was one aspect of it. But as soon as I got into this whole area, I realized that it was an area that nobody was paying particular attention to. It didn't fall in anybody's you know, niche, uh, certainly on the, on the council as far as I could see. And so it led me to open the lens and start to see all of the other issues that revolve around uh, food. One is food access. You know, some people don't have uh, sufficient money uh, to buy fresh food. So we increased uh, benefits for uh, under SNAP. Uh, we in increased benefits under the Women, Infants, and Children's Program. Uh, we also uh, provided greater access by encouraging stores and corner stores and other kinds of uh, availability of fresh uh, food in wards that don't have a lot of food uh, uh, sources. Uh, they call them food deserts. Some people don't like that, but, you know, we've done that. Uh, there's a health, a, a, a dramatic uh, health uh, aspect to this as well. Uh, for example, many uh, people don't think of it this way, but food is actually medicine. When you have these chronic diseases and you're not eating well, you're contributing to the perpetuation of that, that illness and you're not getting better. If you ate better, you would be better. Um, for example, there's this very creative program. I just love this program. It was uh, uh, suggested by uh, uh, one of the uh, groups that's involved in food policy. And that is when doctors have a patient who has chronic disease and is overweight or obese, and they would really benefit from thinking of food as medicine, what the doctor would do is write a prescription. It's called Produce Rx, this, this program. Write a prescription that that uh, person, that patient could take, and in this case, we were working in the pilot uh, project of it, with Giant Food in Ward 8. You could take that prescription to Giant Food and turn it in, and they would give you a coupon for $20 worth of fresh food every week. And Giant got all in on this. In fact, I recently met with the president of Giant, how we're going to expand it. 
Giant, on its own then, paid for a full-time nutritionist to be at that giant, and they outfitted an area where people could go and speak to the nutritionist, learn about food preparation and so on. The idea being that, you know, it's not enough just to get the food sometimes. You know, if I get certain kinds of fresh produce, I might say, mm, what do I do with this? How do I eat this? Um, so joining hands with Giant Food, that program, the Pro Produce RX program, and in the recent budget, I've expanded it and made it, you know, recurring dollars available so that we can move it out to other areas uh, as well. But um, it's the idea that we, and we have to have it in our head that food is medicine and we have to, to be healthy, to uh, maintain our health, but also to help us overcome certain illnesses, uh, we can use food for, for that purpose. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's funny that for generations, people have been saying an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And, and this is yeah, sort of the, a, right. an it's expansion a, on that. Exactly it, it, right. It, it, it's um, literally true. Uh, and, you know, the, the nutrition level of the meals in school um, w was also obviously a part of that, to expose children uh, straight away to good, doesn't mean like bad, bad tasting or anything, to good, well-prepared, healthy foods and, and making uh, healthy choices. Um, in terms of uh, the Healthy Schools Act in particular and the school gardens and that sort of thing, I have been delighted to see that children who had been, because of their urban existence, et cetera, uh, sort of estranged, I would say, from, from the earth, they just love going to the school gardens and planting the carrots and, and um, just really engaging on that level. In fact, I was at one elementary school in my ward, you know, because I stop in sometimes kind of, you know, just ad hoc. And I was going to have lunch with the children. And there was a side dish of whipped sweet potatoes. This just overwhelmed me. I was so happy. Those sweet potatoes were planted, harvested by the students, and then whipped into a side dish that they actually ate at lunch. Um, it, it was exactly what I was hoping for, you know, this, this understanding of the, of the, of the process. Um, you know, I haven't had such a smooth road with uh, a number of my uh, initiatives. For example, I wanted to, uh, as part of paying for the Healthy Schools Act, I wanted to have a, an excise tax on soda and sugary drinks. An excise tax is a tax right on the product. And I thought, how elegant that is. I wanna raise the nutrition level. And because the CDC has said, if you want one policy thing to deal with overweight you know, in the population, one thing is to reduce um, sugary drinks and soda. And, and a way to do that is to put an excise tax, make it more expensive, especially teenagers. They're very price sensitive. So I wanted to have this excise tax, but Big Soda came out, you know, and fought, you know, uh, vigorously all the way. And ultimately, and this was back in 2010, I guess, uh, they prevailed with the majority of the council. The vote was seven to six. I couldn't get a majority. What I had to settle for was a sales tax on soda. But that's not real helpful because a sales tax, as you know, anybody listening to this, you go to the supermarket and you go up to the register, you get your bill, and at the end there's a sales tax. You don't know what that sales tax is affixed to. It's just a sales tax. 
Um, but it was something. It helped me finance the Healthy Schools Act to put that tax on sugary drinks and sodas as a sales tax. Um, but you, you, you know, you have to really uh, fight sometimes. Uh, most recently, I wanted to expand, as I mentioned, this produce RX. You know, where you get the prescription from the doctor, etc., um, by adding money to the budget. And I wanted to increase the sales tax on soda and sugary drinks to pay for it. Uh, and to increase the WIC benefits, women, infants, and children, and the SNAP benefits, and so on. But again, Big Soda came forth, and uh, there were some council members who, um, I believe, carrying their water, uh, were trying to set up obstacles to it. Now, they didn't prevail in the end, but to me, some of these things are so self-evidently beneficial that I shouldn't be getting that kind of uh, resistance. Um, in any case, there, there are a lot of other things uh, that I've done, but I want to mention uh, one thing that has kind of, you know, been an umbrella or bringing things together, and that is at one of my hearings, one of my many hearings on food policy and nutrition, um, Lauren Beale of DC Greens was testifying, and she said, uh, Councilmember Che, uh, you've done this and you've done that and you've done the other thing, maybe it might be a good idea to bring it all together, you know, with some uh, entity, you know, or whatever. So as a result of that, I created the Food Policy Council, and there are people on the council who have special expertise in various aspects of food policy, and um, it got off to a kind of slow start. I had to provide some money so that they could have some um, not only an executive director, but but an assistant, you know, so they could actually do their work, uh, because these are all volunteers, mind you. Um, but they will look at the overall food policies that are in place, look for areas where we have um, need for more action, look for better ways to, you know, fix the Healthy Tots Act or, or, or what have you, and make recommendations uh, to my committee. And happily, I've been able even though I don't have anything called food policy as part of my committee jurisdiction, I have been able to persuade uh, the council and the council chair. Uh, I have one of my agencies is the Department of uh, Energy and the Environment to put um, food policy as part of the description under energy and the environment, mostly the environment, so that um, I've now been able to bring these things into my committee and you know, because you know the council, having a topic in your committee is really vital to moving your legislation. Right. Because if your legislation goes to somebody else's committee, the chair of that committee can make sure it never sees the light of day if they don't like it. And you have to, you know, go on bended knee and say, please move my bill. Um, but if it's in your committee, you can move it forward. You can't guarantee it will be approved in the end, but you can... Um, First of all, you introduce the legislation, you have a, a hearing, you can move that forward, and you can move forward to a markup and get it out to the uh, full council. You can get it moving. You can't always do that if it goes to somebody else's uh, committee. Um, so I got food policy in my committee. The other thing is that there are some little pieces of things that have been put in other committees. For example, the whole idea about urban farming. We uh, have legislation that will give um, benefits to people who want to take 
uh, property that the district owns and use it for farming. It obviously has to have a, a certain size to make it sensible. But people who want to do their own farming on, on land that they have, that they can also do that. And the way we would encourage that is by giving them uh, an incentive, a tax incentive to do that. Well, that whole urban farming thing uh, was previously in another committee. But the agency to which it had been assigned wasn't different. I'll put it that way. They weren't, they weren't against it. They didn't you know, oppose it, but they didn't care about it. They had other things to do. So um, in this most recent budget action, I was able to get the matters related to urban farming moved over to the Department of Energy and the Environment. So again, bringing it all in one place so that we can have some coherent, effective policies. Um, but anyway, I don't know if I've gone on too long, but there are other things which right. we can now, talk well, about. Well, I mean, in... In, in this round of interviews, we're, you know, we're definitely letting the council members pick the topic, mm-hmm. but, but out of sort of journalistic fairness, we're doing a little bit of devil's advocate. Okay, pushback. certainly, sure. What would you say, and this is not me, this is me being devil's advocate, what would you say to folks saying that there's a, a nanny state element to all of this, that, that you're, you're telling folks to eat your veggies and that you're, you're getting in their head and getting in their refrigerator and... What 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 is your pushback in arguing that there's a legitimate government interest? Well, that's to what really you're doing? easy, really really easy. In terms of uh, schools and parks and uh, preschool and that sort of thing, when we operate these um, programs, schools, etc., parks, we are, I think, fiduciaries to the children. Because, and that's why they say, you know, uh, the school uh, system is in loco parentis. That's what we say legally. You stand in place of the parent. When they are in our custody for that period of time, we have a responsibility to take care of them, not just the reading and writing, but to take care of the whole child. So to me, it's not nanny state, it's almost parental state because we stand in place of the parent. And I believe parents want us when they are in our custody, to be fiduciaries and and protect our children. As far as uh, many of these other programs, many of these other programs are incentive-type programs. They are programs where we provide grants. They're programs where we provide uh, uh, financing for things to be done. It's not as if, you know, you're a scold on the corner and uh, yelling at someone who's uh, eating a candy bar. It's, It's not like that. And this whole nanny state complaint, it seems to me, um, it's a label that is not sharply drawn. Certainly, you know, its application here uh, is, is misplaced. Right. And, and many of the people that would label that criticism who would uh, argue that, that falsely that, that the district is not fiscally prudent, given that we're eventually going to pick up the health care costs, unfortunately, oh, yes, for a yes. lot of residents, mm-hmm. it's a preventative Healthcare expense. Absolutely. You know, what, what, what's cheaper, two pounds of produce or a lifetime of health care, you know, uh, medication? Well, you know, you mentioned something, you know, Apple a day. There's another old, you know, saying that, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And that's exactly what you have here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, I think the answer to, to this sort of a devil's advocate question is the same. Um, but doesn't a lot of folks would say the district has so many uh, worse 
problems to deal with, the tragically uh, struggling education system. Um, you know, you're focusing on lunch. What about the rest of the school day? What about the teachers? What about the students? Uh, failing test scores? What about the violence that occurs in the schools, outside of the schools? Um, what about families that are uh, struggling? Um, e even with the strong arguments you make for these being important issues, aren't there more important issues and bigger issues that well, could I be Well, I think of these things as intertwined. As I used the example about the kids eating their uh, breakfast in the classroom, um, you can't have learning when kids are hungry. Uh, that's number one. Uh, the other thing is, for example, take the camps. When we have uh, kids coming to camp, sometimes they come to camp and their meals are the only meal meals that they get. Um, and so uh, it's also a way for us to draw the kids into the camps uh, uh, so that they have fun and play in the summer and learn something, but also to make sure uh, that they're being fed. It's not that these other problems are not serious. But this is not something to be uh, put to one side because, as I said, it's entwined with many of these other problems. You know, you have uh, uh, families who may be so uh, in need of proper food or even food at all that they may not be able to, they're not going to pay their rent because they have to feed their kids. Uh, so, you know, to think of these things as disconnected sort of dots along a line mistakes what's going on. And the root of much of this, the root of much of it, not all of it, but the root of much of it is poverty. And we do many things, you know, to, to deal with poverty, but poverty grinds people uh, every day. And one of the ways that it affects them and can affect them for their entire life, uh, you yourself mentioned this, uh, is, is whether they have proper nutrition. Because if they develop these chronic illnesses, early. They're likely to have them for their whole life. And I, I don't think, uh, you know, that we should minimize in any way these most serious health effects and the quality of life that people um, are being deprived of because they didn't have proper nutrition. Sure. And one, one uh, little, you mentioned kind of the uh, tapestry, all the little uh, things you have to do to stick your finger in the leaky dam to fill the gaps to make sure people get good nutrition. Folks always wonder why D.C. schools close as seldom as they do on snowy days. At least part of that decision-making process is the realization that so many kids, so many D.C. families, a lot of the kids only get food at school. Mm -hmm. So if you close school, the kids aren't going to eat. So I, I don't think the schools are, are putting the kids at risk by sending them to school on snowy days, but at least part of the decision-making is some of the kids might not eat if they don't get to school. Well, you know, in, in that regard, both the weekends and also holidays or snow days, we've been trying to develop plans, you know, the backpack plan, where you may have um, uh, groups that uh, provide food that can be given to kids in backpacks to take home, both for them and their families during days when, when school's not in session. So, uh, you know, it's like you can't just turn it off because there's a snow day, the child is still going to be uh, hungry. But, you know, it actually also goes beyond um, uh, children who are greatly at risk in the 
vein that we're talking, but it's all of our children. Like I said before, to reintroduce children in an urban environment to um, the earth, to, to growing, uh, to reintroduce children generally to, to good nutrition, uh, to show them how they can make their own food. Um, you develop habits early on that will carry you uh, into the future. And even children who come from families, you know, where, where the incomes are higher, they're learning too. I always like to think of schools as not just learning in the classroom, but the entire school is a classroom. The building is a classroom to learn how are we heating this building? How are we, you know, how do, where does the water come from? And the, and the grounds and the, and the gardens, they're also a kind of a classroom. And believe me, you can teach an awful lot about nutrition and science and even math, you know, through uh, gardening and dealing with, uh, dealing with, the, uh, with the gardens. In addition, we've allowed schools to have, like some schools have uh, chickens and they get the eggs and maybe one day a week they actually sell these fresh eggs uh, to, to, to parents or whomever. Uh, they have uh, beehives. All of these things are extraordinary learning opportunities. So they're, they're good in themselves, but they're learning opportunities. Absolutely, I mean, learning by doing is, is mm -hmm. sort of the best learning there is, I think. Um, okay, well, we only have one closeout question this okay. round, pretty easy. Um, and you always uh, say that, but nah. well, I, I, this one, I think, I okay. think, I think we can do it. Um, basically I'm looking over here at my phone, which is off to the side. And I just want you to know, I want you to say between your phone, the part of the phone you actually talk in texting, emailing, and social media. Tell me in order, which of those you would least want to live without. Wh which which of those are you mo or most attached to, to least attached to? Well, I'm most attached to emailing because I get so many emails, but I don't find that fun, and I would love to be able to live without it. What I like most, I guess, among those choices would be uh, texting. Okay. And then what, do you, what is the bottom of the list? That the Remind one, me what the choices uh, are. Uh, talking on the phone, texting, emailing, and social media. Um, texting, phone emailing and social media last okay excellent okay all right there we go i, I, I don't I, know what you're going to do with that but i'm i'm, nothing. I'm suspicious I, I, to be honest i kind of the, the last round i really liked the closeout question this round i struggled a bit okay so i'll, I'll work i'll okay. do better next time all right um but anyway we sat there at a time uh folks but thank you again so much for joining us Tune in again next time. Uh, we are at DC Radio at 96.3 on your HD4 dial or dcradio.gov. Um, thank you so much, Council Member, for well, joining us. Well, thank you um, it's for been, the opportunity. No, it was a great pleasure. Um, I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is hearing the council. Thank you. Take care. Thank you.